This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. Hello from a distance. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. We are going to dive back into our series on Mark, and we are going to be looking at all of chapter 13 this morning. So go ahead and turn there, and please look on with me as I have the privilege now to read to us not just any word, but God's word. Beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is God's Word. Recall that it was just a couple days ago on Sunday when Jesus and His disciples arrived in Jerusalem. We are now on Tuesday of Holy Week. And over these two days, Jesus and His disciples had been spending the majority of their time at the temple. And if you remember, in that time... Jesus has cleared the temple of all those present because the temple had gone from a place of solemn worship to God to what he described as a den of robbers. The merchants in the temple had profaned God's house and no one was doing anything about it. Jesus then returns the next day to the temple only to be faced with accusations, questions, people confronting him about on what authority Do you have the right to speak the way that you do? Tests from religious leaders from the Sanhedrin are coming. And then at the end of his time, out of all the time that Jesus had spent at the temple, before we come to verse 13 as he's leaving the temple, what Mark tells us after two whole days, think about this, Jesus and his disciples are in the place where God has chosen to dwell with his people. During Passover, thousands are coming to the temple. And out of two whole days at the temple, Jesus only sees one demonstration of true faith. And that from a poor widow. That would have been missed, that wouldn't have been noticed unless Jesus had seen her. And now as Jesus is leaving this temple A disciple turns to him. We don't know who the disciple was. And he begins to tell Jesus, look at this temple, Jesus. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it grand? Look how wonderful it is. And it was an amazing temple. On the outside, it was big. It was a feat of human ingenuity, human strength. Yet as remarkable as the proportions of the temple is Jesus' attitude toward it. Without missing a beat, Jesus answers this disciple, do you see these great buildings? Do you see the size of this temple? Guess what's going to happen? There's not going to be one left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
As one author said, the disciples drop their jaws over building blocks, but Jesus dismisses them as stumbling blocks. While the disciples were transfixed on the outside of the temple, Jesus, what he saw was only the corrosion that existed on the inside. What he saw is that this temple had become a whitewashed tomb. And being so, this is what's happening, is that the glory of God is leaving the temple. The glory of God has left the temple. And what we're going to see in chapter 13 is that the glory has left and God's judgment is coming. Yet, in Mark 13, what we see, what Jesus begins to share with the disciples and with us this morning is what the future holds. He begins to take hold their hand and lead them into what to expect in the coming days. And for us this morning, he wants to tell us about the future that we await. This year's graduating classes, they've had a very different graduation experience, haven't they? But while graduation ceremonies have been affected dramatically, commencement addresses have been very popular. Entertainers, musicians, business leaders have all written speeches, have all given them shared videos with the class of 2020 in the midst of the, in the, midst of the pandemic as their graduation experience was affected. And as I looked through a number of these speeches, what I noticed is that there was this common thread of these individuals trying to help and inspire the class of 2020 to be that next generation who can fix our country, who can, as they look on at our country and the pandemic and all that is happening, you, the class of 2020, can fix this thing. As one of the speech as one speech said, can you, the class of 2020, show us not how to put the pieces back together again, but how to create a new and more evolved normal? A world more just, kind, beautiful, tender, luminous, creative, whole. As we and as these speakers and as the class of 2020, as we look at our country right now, and Bill, as Bill's friend, whoever you are, aptly described our country, it is a dumpster fire in many ways. As we look at the pandemic, as we look, as we see suffering, as we see the racial injustice, as we see political corruption, as what are we going to do? Who's going to fix this thing? Where is this headed? You may be asking the same questions. Well, as I look through these speeches, one text which didn't make it into any of these speeches was Mark 13. But while that ch this chapter that we're going to look at this morning didn't make these speeches, I just wanted to appeal to us that there is no more relevant chapter that we need for our lives and where we are than right now. This is what we need to be setting our eyes on. This is where we need to be setting our hope. Because as we look at this text, Jesus is going to say, you should not be surprised of what is going on. You should not be surprised. He wanted his disciples to not be surprised, but he wanted to equip them as they go into this world that is going 
to be struggling, that is going to be, have brokenness and sin in it. This is what you need to be doing. And so in Mark 13, what Jesus does is he gives the disciples and us this morning the necessary conditions on what it looks like to follow him. What it looks like to remain faithful to him. What am I supposed to be doing? That's the question, isn't it? We all feel that. What am I supposed to be doing? And Jesus, in this text, wants to give us an answer to that. Yet Jesus sets the context of this conversation in light of his promised and most certain return. If I could capture what this chapter says in one sentence, this is what I would say, our main point. Live each day with an eager expectation of Jesus' return. Live each day with an eager expectation of Jesus' return. Or as Martin Luther put it, there are two days on my calendar. Two days. This day and that day. This day and that day. Friends, the text we have before us this morning, it's not merely meant to fill our minds with knowledge. This isn't meant to just be a download of information. No, what this does is as we look to the future, it is equipping us to be light. As we look to the future, it helps us to know how are we supposed to live today? This text isn't meant to be we're going to be so heavenly minded that we're not going to be no earthly good, as the saying goes. No, this text, what, after reading this text, after considering it, what this does is we should be on the edge of our seat. We should be eager. We should be ready. What are we called to do today in light of where we're going? Because we know where we're going. Where are we going? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. And as we face this world, as we see the brokenness of this world, as we see the sadness, as we see the injustice, we're not called to cower before it. We're supposed to share and be faithful and be committed to Jesus Christ because we are living this day in light of that day when he will return. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most to the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And so it is worth our time to think about where we're going. It is worth our time to think about the future. It is worth our time to think that Jesus is coming back because it has relevance for us today. So let's look at these. What are the conditions? First condition, we must stand firm. Verses 3 through 13. So now Jesus has, he has gone to the Mount of Olives. He, has, he is now actually above the temple with his disciples looking down on it. It would have been 150 feet above the temple. And as they are looking down on the temple, the disciples, as you would have imagined, begin to ask Jesus about his comments earlier. They begin to ask, Teacher, tell us more about when and how this is to be. They were wanting to know the details. Give us insights. What, what do you mean the temple is going to be destroyed? How is this going to go down? But notice, Jesus, before telling them how this will happen, he, he begins to address their hearts. 
Before telling them, like, okay, let me tell you how this temple will be destroyed. No, he says, first and foremost, before we look at the temple, we're going to look at you boys. We're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to address your hearts. I'm going to help you because I'm here for you. And so he addresses our hearts as well. Notice in verse 5, this is what Jesus begins to tell his disciples. He says, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. This verb in verse 5, it's translated here, see that. Or another way to put it is take heed, watch out. It occurs all throughout this chapter in verses 5, 9, 23, and 33. This sets the tone for what Jesus is wanting to do for us in this text. It is calling us to watch out, to be watchful. So more than filling our minds with knowledge, he wants to fill our hearts and the disciples' hearts with faith so that we can stand firm for what is true. Remember, Jesus has told these, the disciples three times now that he is going to die. He, he, he tells of the passion prediction. We're on Tuesday of Holy Week. He's going to be killed. We're not months away. We're not years away. We're mere days away. On Friday, Jesus will be crucified. But, but don't miss Jesus. He is not preoccupied with the cross. He is not so distracted with what to come that he is not engaging with his disciples. No, he is pastoring. He is caring for. He is investing in his disciples. He is taking the time to prepare them for what is to come because He loves them. This is just another evidence of the selflessness of Jesus Christ. What incredible love. He wanted to prepare these disciples not to be caught off guard. So in verses 3-8, through eight, Jesus warns them that there will be false prophets. There will be false Messiah. So to stand firm, we need discernment. We need to be able to renew our minds so that when we hear of lies, when we hear of false messiahs, we are able to see them and know them and not be drawn away by them. False messiahs were very common in the times of Christ, but they're also very common in our times as well. I can remember when I lived in Louisville, I worked with a gentleman who had recently been converted to Mormonism. And, and talking with him and trying to talk with him about the gospel and trying to talk with him about who Jesus was and hearing how he had bought in to this false Messiah, to this false religion, was both grieving and maddening because I wanted him to see that, no, this is who Jesus really is. We also have the prosperity gospel, the gospel that says, here's what God wants to do for you. He wants to promise you health, wealth, and prosperity. All you have to do is believe. Believe in Jesus, and he will make your life better. God wants you to have your best life now. But Jesus in Mark 13, he says, okay, you want to hear about your best life now? As we look at Mark 13, this is what followers of Christ have to look forward to. This is what your life is going to look like. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be natural disasters. There will be earthquakes. There will be typhoons. There will be famines. There will be beatings. You will be persecuted. There will be betrayal. 
That is what it's going to mean to follow Christ. That is what it's going to look like. It's not your best life now. Because of all the good, easy life that Jesus is going to give you. No, it's your best life now and to come because you have Jesus. Look in verse 7. Jesus is pastoring the disciples and us this morning. Are you anxious this morning? As you look around all that's going on in our country, all that's going on in our world, here's what Jesus says. He says, this must take place. This must take place. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. What happens when we're alarmed? We begin to not think clearly. We begin to try to find other things that we can hold on to and latch on to for hope. Jesus here is preparing us. This must take place. Calm down. Believe in me. Remain faithful. Remember this day. I am with you. This will happen. These words are meant to anchor us, to put our trust in Christ, even in the midst of the storm. Storms are coming. Suffering is coming. Hardship is coming. But Christ is with us and is coming again. Jesus says that these are but the birth pains. Labor has begun. But that does not mean that we are ready to push, does it? Labor has begun. These things have begun, but we, Jesus doesn't tell us when he will return. What he does tell us is that this has begun. Jesus tells us again in verse 9, he tells the disciples to be on guard, to be watchful, for you will suffer and face persecution. All you have to do is read through the book of Acts and get a commentary on this verse. All you have to do is read a little bit and you will see that Stephen is stoned. You will see that the apostles are arrested and persecuted time and time again. But what I love is as you read Acts 5, what you see is the disciples or the apostles now who were the disciples minus Judas, what they do is they are dragged, they are threatened, they are beaten by the Sanhedrin for boldly proclaiming the gospel. And what is their response? Are they surprised? No. Are they worried? No. Are they scared? No. What did they do? They left rejoicing. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That is standing firm. That is the kind of faith that Jesus wants to instill in the disciples and us this morning. And what I love is Jesus says in verse 10 that the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. All the nations. The gospel is going forth through all the nations. And this is true today. What I love is that the gospel is still going forth in power. Don't miss that. The gospel is going forth. What I love to think about is what's going on here this morning and all throughout our country is Christians are coming together to open God's word and hear the gospel. And what I love to think about too is that Mac and Leanne Stiles are over in Erbil and they are planting churches. People are being saved. People are being baptized. All throughout the nation, this is happening. To hear Talia's testimony this morning and to hear Bria's faithfulness to go and just start a conversation with her doesn't matter if you go to Iraq or if you just go to UT's campus or if you just go to your neighbor's house and you start talking about the gospel. The gospel is spreading. Don't miss that. 
Yesterday, June 27th, 1819, 201 years ago, Adoniram Judson baptized his first Burman convert after seven years of being in Burma. By the time he died in 1850, he had seen 7,000 Burmese baptized, 63 churches planted. By the year 2000, over 3,500 churches with 600,000 members. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is going forth in power. God is at work. As C.S. Lewis would say, Aslan is on the move. God is at work. Brothers and sisters, we're going to be seen as, seen as fools. The gospel is, full, is foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's what we stand on. We don't leave from this. It's where we, no matter the cost, no matter what it takes, we stand firm on this gospel. Here's what Jesus tells them, what you can expect. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit who speaks. Jesus is promising that he, we're not going to be alone. That even when we're, we're taken before these councils, when the disciples are going to come and stand before the Sanhedrin, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. He's preparing him. Remember, he's going to leave. He's going to be crucified, raised from the dead. They're going to be taken. Stand firm. I may not be with you, but the Holy Spirit will be with you, helping you to testify to the gospel. That is true for us today. Jesus, before he left, says, know that I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. And what I love is how Jesus ends in verse 13. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but, oh, let's hold on to this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We'll be saved. We will be with God. And then when we come to verses 14 through 23, what we see is that Jesus now begins to answer the disciples' question. Remember, all this began with a question from the disciples about when the temple will be destroyed. And Jesus now zeroes in on this question and seeks to answer it. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say this up front. A lot of ink has been spilled on these verses. Okay? And I'm not going to have time to go through all the ink and all the thoughts that have been talked about on these verses. I don't think it's the point of our time here is to talk through all that. But I think what I do want to do is to share what I think Jesus is referring to in these verses about the temple being destroyed and the abomination of desolation. So there is a particular instance of upheaval, upheaval that will take place during all the others that Jesus here predicts. So first, what you see, Jesus talks about when you see the abomination of desolation. So that's in verse 14, meaning... What that means, that phrase, is the abomination that causes desolation. So he's referring to the abomination, the one who's going to desecrate, destroy the temple. We see the similar phrase used in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, 27, 11:31, and 12:11. And there it describes an act that will destroy and desecrate Jerusalem's temple, and it drove the people away from the temple. 
First century Jews would have believed this was fulfilled in 167 BC by Antiochus IV of the Seleucid Empire. He entered Jerusalem, and reports say that he killed some 40,000 Jews. He outlawed Judaism. And then he rededicated the temple to Zeus. He built a pagan altar over the altar of sacrifice where they would offer their sacrifices. And he sacrificed, remember, these are Jews, he sacrificed a pig on the altar, that which was considered unclean. So this was a clear fulfillment of what Daniel was referring to. And this is what's in the background of what is being said here. But now, Jesus is not telling the people to endure, but to flee. So remember, in, in our text, in these verses, what Jesus says is that, that one is coming. And then he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. He goes on to say, don't try to stay here and protect the temple. He says, get out of there. Run. Don't stay. Because what is coming will be an unprecedented tribulation when God's judgment falls on Jerusalem. And this will happen 40 years later as Jesus predicts here. In 70 A.D., the marching boots of Rome will come upon Israel, led by Titus. There will be famine. There was disease. There was even cannibalism. There were so many Jews that were crucified that they ran out of wood to crucify. These verses had particular relevance to the disciples. There are critical sources that says all the Christians left. They left Jerusalem. They listened to Jesus, they left, and they were not effective when Rome came to destroy the temple. What Jesus is prophesying here is not just applicable to the disciples, but it is to us today. You say, how is this applicable to us today? Well, there is a transitioning happening here. There is something significant that Jesus is trying to show to the disciples and us this morning. God's dwelling place has always been the temple. God has always dwelt with his people through the temple. The people would bring their sacrifices for sins. They were made to bring atonement. Forgiveness was done at the temple with God on the altar through priests. But now the temple has been destroyed because there's a new temple, right? The old covenant has passed. There is a new covenant that is now in the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God comes, it wasn't just that he was angry and ticked off at his people and destroyed the temple. But what we see is that this is even greater. This temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus is predicting it because now we go to Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus has come It's only through Him that we can be forgiven of our sins. It's only through Him that we can be drawn near to God. It is only through Him that we can take the gospel to the nations. It is only through Him that we have access to God. As 
At the end of these verses, in verses 22 to 23, Jesus pulls back again and he charges his disciples. Look at this with me, verses 22 to 23. He again says, For false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. They're going to try to lead you astray. But be on guard. There's that verb, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Second point, second condition, we must remain hopeful. At this point, I imagine the disciples would be quite sobered after hearing that from Jesus. They probably don't know what to think. They're trying to wrap their minds and hearts around this future that Jesus is painting for them. I mean, think about all that has been laid on them. False messiahs will come, wars, natural disasters, persecution, suffering, betrayal. You will be brought before councils and rulers. You're going to be hated. The temple's going to be destroyed. The disciples have to be thinking, so what are we supposed to do? What, what is happening? Why is all this happening? Well, let's look at verse 24. And as we do, Jesus is now beginning to shift the conversation to another time frame. He's now turning from what is to come in the short term to now set their gaze on the long term, to the future, to, to that day. Not to the immediate future, but to that day. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. What I love about these verses is that the language uses here, is, this is not new language that Jesus uses. This is all Old Testament language. Jesus is saying this is what has been said from the beginning. This is steeped in Old Testament prophecy, promises that have always been with the Jewish people, with God's people. And hearing this, the disciples' minds would have gone to Daniel 7. Verses 13 through 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is telling the disciples, I am this one. I am the Son of Man. Remember, how did Mark's gospel begin? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because, God, because Jesus is God's true and final King. He is the Son of Man who is going to come and has come. The Ancient of Days was presented before Him. Who is going to have dominion and glory? All peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. God's salvation is not in the temple. It's going to be destroyed. So listen, boys, you've got to look to me. You're following me. Notice what Jesus says in verse 27. Oh, I love this. When he comes back, this is what's going to happen. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Listen to this quote from James Edward. The longing that things ought not to be as they are and cannot be allowed to remain as they are is essentially an eschatological longing, meaning an end time, wanting Christ to return, wanting all this to be fixed. The grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic 
or intuition, but in the word of Jesus, who will return in glory and justice to condemn evil in suffering and gather his own to himself. So my question for you this morning is, do you have hope? Brothers and sisters, we have every reason to hope this morning. Let me promise you, if all we fill our minds with is what's on social media, if all we fill our minds with is what's on cable news network, and you're coming in and that's what we're filling your mind with, then I completely understand why you are lacking hope this morning. I completely understand. But brothers and sisters, this morning as God's people, we are meant to be people of great and sure hope because our mind and our hope and our attention is not on what this world has to say, but on what Christ has promised and has said. And what this means as we look to the future, this doesn't mean that we are to back away from the world. It doesn't mean that we're not called to care about what's going on. No, we should care deeply because we have the answer, right? We have the answer that this world needs. What we need to see is we need to take the gospel to this world so that they can hear Christ and Him crucified and have a changed heart that will produce a new life. It is only in Christ where people stop hating one another, stop being divisive with one another. It's only in the gospel where we see one another as image bearers of God and that we love one another. It's because our hope is set on that day. It's not set on election day. It's not set on inauguration day. No, it's on, the only day that it's set on is that day when all things will be made right. Every knee will bow. And this is what's most staggering. Look what Jesus does. Jesus, he's not going to come and return flexing his muscles, say, hey, check me out. Yeah. No, every eye and every knee will bow, but look what Jesus does. Look what he, this is what he's going to do for you. If you are a Christian, this is what Jesus promises to do when he returns. He's going to come for you. He's going to send his angels to gather all his elect, all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He is going to gather. He is going to gather you into his arms and dwell with you forever. Jesus is not going to overlook you. Do you worry about that? God is not going to overlook you. Jesus, when he returns, he's coming for you. He's coming for you because he loves you. Jesus is not too great to overlook you. No, it's because of his greatness and his love and his power and his glory that he's coming right for you. And here's the promise. He's not going to miss a one. If you are his, then he, when he returns, he will come and he get you. We have every reason to hope this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what, if this sounds foreign to you, what we have to offer you is hope. What we have to offer you is hope in a person, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could never live. He died on the cross for our sins. He has risen from the dead, and He is coming back. He is. And what we would invite you this morning is to believe in this Jesus, to hold on to Him. He's the only hope. 
He is a sure hope. Listen to G.K. Chesterton. Hope means hoping. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or a platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. And as Christians, now is the time for us to be strong. Now is the time for us to tell people about our hope. Not be shy about our hope, but be proud of our hope. To boast of our hope, to say here is the hope that we have. Not with self-righteousness, but out of great love out of great comfort, out of awareness of that this is what's been given to us. So now we can offer it to those around us. This is a Romans 8 type of hope. Christians, they were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but guess what? Even though we are more than conquerors, Jesus, he's wanting to put steel in our spines this morning. He's, He's wanting us to be able to stand strong don't be foolish. Remember, he's, he's told his disciples, Rome, is, this day is coming where you're going to need to flee, so be wise. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud, but be courageous. Stand for my name. Proclaim my name to the nations. You can be facing suffering. You can be facing persecution. You can be facing a country where we don't know what's going to happen, but you can have hope. And you can stand strong. You can go to church on Sunday. You can open your Bible on Monday. You can pray. You can invite your neighbor over and you can begin to share with them the gospel. We must be courageous. We must remain hopeful. And then Jesus leaves them, our third point, we must be watchful. Jesus ends his message to the disciples and us this morning with these repetitive warnings to be alert, to stay awake. In verses 33 to 37, Jesus warns the disciples with five commands to be awake and alert and ready. One cannot hear these words of Jesus and leave thinking the Christian life is one of coasting. It's one of apathy or passivity. No, it is one of great attention and care. It is one where we are aware of what is going on around us. Jesus uses the fig tree to teach the disciples a lesson. The fig tree, as it begins to show signs of blooming, means that things are near. You need to take these things seriously. So when he says these things, what he's telling the disciples is that in this next generation, in 40 years, the destruction of the temple will happen. And that was proven true. The end is now. We are experiencing the already and not yet with Christ coming. These things are coming to be. But Jesus promises this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. That is just a reality. But here's what he said. My words, they will not pass away. You can stand on my words. They are true. They are eternal. They are divine. And so what is most amazing is that for Jesus to say this means that Jesus is divine. It means that Jesus carries this authority. It means that Jesus is the Son of God sent to rescue sinners. There's this website called the Prophecy News Watch. It's a website with over 350,000 subscribers, has various articles, but this one seemed relevant to us this morning. It said, recognizing the signs of the times, a warning to our generation. The author walks through 16 signs that are clear evidence that Jesus will be returning soon. 
They list the pandemic, locusts, the arrival of the exponential curve, more famines, deaths, the war in the 20th century, and many other examples. But they end with this sentence. Our generation doesn't think Jesus will come, but he will. And all the signs say he'll come in our generation. Jesus says this in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So this person does not know when Jesus is coming. It is not right for them to say that Jesus is going to come in our generation because they don't know. So if you subscribe to this side, I would encourage you not to subscribe to that side. I love John Wesley's response. Somebody asked him, what would you do if, if you heard that Jesus Christ is coming tomorrow? He opened his planner, looked what he had planned, and he said, this is what I would do. He would remain faithful because no one knows. He would just do what he feels like God has called him to. He would be watchful. He would seek to remain faithful to what God has called us to. I love Jesus. He leaves with this story, this illustration. He says, it's like there's a master of the house who leaves. He gives work to different people to do different things, but then he gives the job of the watch out, the doorkeeper, whose one job is to stay awake. Don't fall asleep because the master of the house may come back. That's what Jesus is calling to this morning, to stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't get lost in all that's going on. Don't let there be a fog before you, but hold on to Jesus. We have every reason to hope. We have every reason to remain faithful to him. We can live each day with an eager expectation that Jesus will return. And more than just preparing for his return, Jesus was preparing his disciples for the cross. This text, it serves as a bridge that Jesus is building for his disciples. It's t this is Tuesday of Holy Week. And at the end of this day, it's one day closer to Friday. He gets one day closer to the cross, yet his attention is on this little band of disciples, not himself. And what he's doing is he's sitting, he's sitting with them. He's looking them in the eye. He says, don't worry, boys, I'm coming back. There's work for you to do here. You can remain faithful. You can live in a way which you are eagerly expecting me that I will come back. Because although when you see me on the cross, that might look like the most hopeless place for me to be, let me promise you this. Rest assured, your hope is most secure. Because what's going to happen on Friday is that I may die, but on Sunday I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to be alive. And there's a promise that I'm coming back. And I'm not just coming back, I'm coming back for you. And that is true for us today. So let's live each day eagerly expecting Jesus' return. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us this morning. I do pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us faith. As we look to the future as we consider what is to come as as we look at your word may you fill us with faith and trust and confidence in you you are god there's none like you lord we we pray and ask that you would come you have promised that you are making all things new and so lord we stand on your promises this morning we are a people who have every reason to hope so may we leave here filled with hope, filled with confidence, filled with trust in you 
and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.